So far we've spoken quite a bit about the first two ways of establishing mindfulness, of establishing mindfulness in the body, establishing mindfulness in the feeling tone of experience. Then of course there is this third way of establishing mindfulness, which is establishing mindfulness of the mind, in the mind. And in the discourse, this is approached in a very specific way. It's not the mind as such. But in the discourse, it speaks about beginning to know how the mind is affected. When the mind is affected by aversion, or when the mind is affected by calm, or when the mind is affected by anxiety, or when the mind is affected by spaciousness or by contractedness. So what is really being pointed to quite, quite clearly in the beginning of this practice explanation is that the mind is a process. It's a verb, that we should think of the process of minding. We often think of mind in capital letters as a thing. But actually, when we look at it carefully, we see indeed the mind is a process. And it is being shaped and affected moment to moment by a range of different things, by sensory impressions, by habit patterns, by tendencies, by, by so many different conditions. The mind is being shaped moment to moment. And of course, when the mind is being shaped by, say, aversion or contractedness, this is the point where we say, my mind is like this. So the encouragement here is always to return back to this process mode, which of course is, is a very simple thing to do, but it's not a very easy thing to do. Returning to the process mode is actually through loosening the identification. It is identification that turns process into state. It's identification that turns verbs into noun. And in the early teachings, uh, the, the Pali language, it's very much a language of process, that all things are process. Body is process. Mind is process. Self is process. It's actually a process of selfing. But as with all of the other aspects of our experience, it is so worth and so valuable to bring this dimension of experience clearly into the forefront of our mindfulness to begin to investigate it, to begin to know the minding of the moment. The minding of the moment. This, uh, this, this uh, part of the discourse really refers very specifically not so much to the cognitive element of mind, but much more to the state of the mind, the climate of the mind, the mood of the mind. This is really what is central in this part of the contemplation. I'm beginning to see that mind states or moods, these are like weather patterns, aren't they? Some of them make very brief visits, you know, they appear and they pass away. Some of them really linger far longer than we would like. Some surprise us, 
You know, we seem to stumble across a, a mind state of calm or spaciousness. Some we rather dread their return. You know, low moods, aversive moods, we rather dread their return. Many, many of them are, some of the mind states we experience are difficult, that we, we really don't like to be in them. We, we struggle with them. We don't want to, we say, feel this way. Some of them are very lovely, you know, the, the loveliness of mind states of spaciousness or sensitivity or appreciation or kindness. You know, we, they're, they're very, very lovely. And in fact, much of meditative practice is in the service of cultivating the mind that is lovely the mind that is truly a friend, the mind that we really wish to inhabit rather than the mind that we want to get away from. But whether lovely or unlovely, of course, our state of mind, our mood has a very profound effect. In fact, our mind state becomes our world. It is not only the mind that is shaped, the world that is shaped. In a mind state, for example, of uh, aversion, how does the world look to you? It doesn't look that promising. In a mind state of aversion, we, we highlight and focus on everything that is wrong, everything that is flawed, everything that is imperfect, everything that is irritating. In fact, we live in a very you know, toxic world in the midst of an aversive mind state. You know, when the mind is imbued with kindness or spaciousness, the world looks really different, doesn't it? Look at us surrounded by all these great people, you know, and yeah, they stumble at times, but that's okay, you know, and just just look at the colors and the light and, uh, you know, the mind that's anxious, you know, inhabits a world of threat where everything that could go wrong you know, catastrophizing. Um, so it's really aware that, you know, our mind is our world. Our mind state is our world. There's a wonderful quote, I'm not quite sure where it comes from. It says, you know, we imagine our mind to be like a mirror, more or less accurately reflecting life as it is, not, uh, not, not realizing that our mind is the principal architect of that world. There is always a mind state. You have one just now. It's not like you occasionally have a mind state. <laughs> you always have a mind state in every waking moment, and indeed often in our dreams, which is why our dreams often take a particular shape. Um, if we're going to understand how our world of experience comes into being, then it's so crucial that we really see how our world is being shaped moment to moment and to come to know mind as mind, mind states as mind states, moods as moods. When we look at the moods or the mind states of the moment, it's not looking through the lens of what is a good mood or a bad mind state, but really looking at actually what leads or contributes to distress 
and what leads and contributes to the end of the distress. So it's very clear we perceive the world through our mind through the eyes of our mind states. We interpret the world through the eyes of mind, our mind states. We react to the world through the eyes of our mind states, and we behave in the world aligned with our mind states. And I'm sure you've seen this in the days here. You know, our, our behavior, our physical behavior, is often such a big clue to the state of mind, isn't it? You know? The bell goes, you know, I'm not going to that sitting, you know, or how slowly can I get there, you know? How slowly can I actually get into that hall, you know? Or, you know, we, we find ourselves, uh, <laughs> the great one, enchanted by the notice board. <laughs> how long can I be there? You know, it, there's a mind state going on, you know, there's a mind state happening, you know, like, feed me, feed me. <laughs> but we, but we, we see how our mind states govern our behavior, what we do and what we don't do, what we engage in, what we don't engage in. Moment to moment, you know, uh, someone uh, doesn't return our smile and you can feel the mind state skyrocket, you know. You know, suddenly I, oh, no, I'm unlovable. You know, I've imposed on them. Uh, in our group yesterday, just that very simple statement Narayan made the other night about please don't talk in your work period. Boy, did that trigger some mind states. <laughs> Quite an innocuous mind state, you know, but, a statement. But how many people felt, she's talking about me. You know, you know, you know I did something wrong in it. Now, what we start to notice is that difficult mind states are far more productive in terms of thinking. You know, lovely mind states are not that productive. You know, when you're very calm, when you're very spacious, you don't spend a lot of time ruminating about why you're calm or why you're spacious, you know. You just don't, do you? You just appreciate it, enjoy it. But get a more difficult mind state of aversion, anxiety... Look at the rumination, the obsession that is produced, the long stories, you know, the long narratives that are produced. Um, and those thoughts are aligned by, are shaped or colored by the mind state. You know, when you're in a particularly contracted, aversive mind state, you don't have a lot of thoughts of kindness. Hmm? When you're caught in a very anxious mind state, you don't have a lot of thoughts of well-being. You know, so the mind state really produces thoughts that are colored and aligned with the mind state itself. And of course, what happens is we enter into these closed feedback loops that can feel so imprisoning, can't they? You know, the, the, the thought cycles that just go round and round and round. You know, that the, the mind state of anxiety is producing all the thoughts of worry. You know, the thoughts of worry are feeding back to strengthen the mind state, even to produce more thinking, producing an even more embedded mind state. The body gets involved you know, in terms of contractedness or, or restlessness. And, you know, you can find, it, it, it's, it's almost, it, it really is not, it, it's a, almost a scary experience to feel how imprisoned we can feel by our mind, you know. And it can have such a pr profound effect on our lives. 
you know, and of course, when we, if we go around that circle enough times, um, we start to believe it as mind states become part of self, don't they? I, I'm an anxious person, or, you know, I'm an angry person, or, you know, we, we hear it when we speak, I'm this kind of person. <coughs> and it really just is describing the loops that we've gone around so many times that it's almost like a default mechanism. You know, in this teaching, the Buddha just so encouraged us to cultivate a mind that feels like a friend, that is a refuge rather than a mind that we just wish would stop, you know, that we wish we could get out of. So it shapes who, who we believe our, ourselves to be, you know, and the repetition of the thoughts kind of validates, reifies that self-view. You know, um, Wittgenstein once said, you know, words deliver us a picture and the picture holds us captive. That's so fascinating, isn't it? That words deliver us a picture, and the picture holds us captive. You know, so our thoughts deliver us a picture of who we are, of who you are, you know, of what is happening. And the words hold us captive. So I think the Buddha was very realistic in really recognizing just the painfulness of this, just the dukkha of it, you know? Not that it's bad or wrong, but this is what an untrained mind does, you know? When he says, I can think of no one thing that does so much harm as an untrained mind, but I can think of no one thing that is a greater ally than a well-trained mind. And we are really training the mind in non-rumination, in non-obsession, in non-proliferation. In fact, one of the words that's used interchangeably with nibbana or awakening is nipapancha, no longer proliferating. (laughs) No longer proliferating. I think that's so beautiful. You know, nipapancha. Imagine living in a mind of nipapancha, you know, no longer proliferating. This is really a mind unbound. I always think mindfulness of mind states is a practice we undertake almost by stealth, you know, because it's very hard to look at a mind state with with an attention that's already flavored by the mind state, if you notice that. You know, you've got a very aversive mind state, and then you're trying to look at it or be mindful of it with an attention that's already flavored by the mind state. Yeah, that's so aversive. I really don't like this aversive mind state. This is not going to work. You know, it's not going to work. It just becomes a more refined way of feeding it. So I almost think of this as a practice by stealth. You know, I think it's really useful to. Uh, beginnings of sittings, end of sittings, beginning of walkings, end of walkings, standing in the lunch line, um, getting ready to go to bed at night, waking up in the morning, really cultivating a lot of pause moments where we just pose a very simple question. What is the mood? What is the mind state just now? Because it's going to govern everything, isn't it? might govern whether we get to the hall or how we get to the hall, might govern how we look at everyone around us, might govern how we interpret what's going on here, just to keep pausing, ah, 
what is the mood just now? You know, not expecting always there to be these crystal clear answers, you know, uh, you know, and, and don't, don't make it into a project, you know, about, I've got to really figure it out. Is it aversion or anxiety? You know, is it contractedness? Or, you know, don't get into a project mind with it. But I think it's a part of a process of developing a kind of an emotional literacy because this is the affective tone of our experience. You know, if we think of the mindfulness of the body as the somatic tone of experience, you know, Vedna is a hedonic tone of experience, and mind states is the affective tone of our experience. So just beginning to develop that literacy, you know, uh, oh, a pause. What is the mood just now? What is the mind state just now? What is affecting the mind just now? What is shaping the mind just now? This is very much part of this process of beginning to be able to see a mood as a mood, a mind state as a mind state. If we can begin to develop that, we also realize that moods or mind states do not have an independent self-existence. You know, these are not predetermined. Please forgive me, but you are not an anxious person. You, know, you are not an aversive person. You know, that's simply where we have formulated a self around a repeated mind state, you know. So we see they don't have an independent self-existence. They rely upon being fed. So we ask ourselves, well, what, what is sustaining this mood or this mind state of the moment? And the answer is usually actually pretty evident. It's thinking the thinking that is flavored by the mind state. This is like, you know, the Buddha says you want to keep a fire burning, just keep throwing logs on it. It's a sure thing, you know. So we keep throwing the logs of the thoughts onto the mind state and that mind state stays in place, okay. So we have a lot of practice here, don't we, about how to step out of that proliferating of thought, you know, how to come back to the body, you know, how to ground ourselves, to begin to step out of the, the clutch, the, the, the clutching of those thought patterns. There is a discernment element that is helpful here. It's not about good mind states, bad st mind states. It's really, really about what is helpful and what is unhelpful. Yeah? Is it helpful to stay in this mind state of contractedness? Where does it lead? What's its outcome? How does it feel? Uh, is it helpful? Does this actually lead to more spaciousness, more sense of uh, a deepening of mindfulness, a deepening of awareness? You know, it's not about what I get rid of or what I don't get rid of, but discernment is always the bridge between mindfulness and skillful effort. If we haven't got discernment, we've just got passive watching which really doesn't go anywhere. Hmm? So discernment is that necessary link between mindfulness and wise response about what is cultivated and what is released. It's a very crucial factor. I think sometimes people in this pathway become so allergic to the word judgment that as they endeavor to throw out judgment, they also throw out discernment. We need discernment. Because that, that teaches us how to respond. The body is very helpful here, 
both the body of the moment and actually, you know, the way that we're behaving. What is moving the body? You know, not so much our speech in this situation, but in other situations, yes. What is moving the body in this moment? What is the body embodying? Is it embodying a particular mind state? You know, if we find ourselves somehow we've got, we hardly wonder in a day how we're going to finish all the projects that we've got lined up for today. That is a mind state that says, you know, let, let's just keep this momentum of doing going. So often we read this, what does the, what does the body of sadness feel like? You know, the, the body of contractedness, the body of spaciousness, the body of calm. We start to pick up the clues. Sometimes the clues are when we have a continuum of thinking that really carries a, a persistent emotional theme. You know, if we find ourselves, you know, being very uh, critical or judgmental and it's going, going on, or if we find ourselves, you know, caught in planning, 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 or rehearsing, rehearsing, rehearsing. Um, we actually know that there is a mind state that is behind that. This is a major clue. We start to actually begin to pick up these, these clues, you know, and, and again really discern and ascertain, you know, what is being cultivated, what is being practiced in this moment. It was cultivated and practiced in this moment. And, you know, the greatest blessing, the greatest liberation that most people discover in this process is that they begin to have choices about what they cultivate. That's a tremendous freedom. Tremendous freedom. So, again, we're not going to make a project out of this today. Um, but again, as we did with Vedana, we just begin to notice this aspect of our experience, really encourage you to take those pause moments, beginnings, endings of sittings, transitions, um, and, and just regular pause moments of just, ah, what is the mind state just now? We don't, it might be that then that asks for a response. It might be that it asks for a response of being more grounded in the body, of calming the proliferation. Um, it, but it's really important just to know, just to know what the mind state is. Okay, so let's take some time to sit, finding a posture of ease, of balance. Touching the ground. And settling, inhabiting the body, inhabiting this moment with a fullness of mindfulness, of sensitivity. <coughs> Taking a moment just to sense what is the mood of the moment? What is the state of mind present for you just now? Irritability, calmness, dullness, spaciousness, 
Just a simple knowing of that as much as you're able. Sensing the shape of the mind, the climate of the mind. And in the midst of whatever mind state is present, just establishing mindfulness within the body, the body touching the ground, the body sensing, listening, and the body breathing.
This is from the Satipatthana Sutta. Whether going out or returning, the yogini acts with full attention. Whether looking ahead or looking around, she or they acts with full attention. Whether bending an arm or straightening it, she or they acts with full attention in taking one's overrobe, bowl, and spare underrobe. The yogini acts with full attention. Whether defecating or urinating, she or they acts with full attention. Whether walking, standing, or sitting, whether resting or awake, whether talking or silent, she or they acts with full attention. So, didn't leave a whole lot out. (laughs) We want to encourage you to act with full attention throughout the day today. And um, day, this word day is just a concept. It's life unfolding moment to moment. But kind of just continually touching back in with this intentionality to act, to... um, to be with full attention in whatever activities you're engaged in. And if you have been avoiding the walking or have not really yet engaged with the walking or seen how wonderful the walking can be as a practice of its own, today's the day, yeah, today's the day to engage with full attention in the walking. So I want to encourage you, it's so easy to be ambivalent and to really go at it with the sitting, but then to hold back, to hesitate with the walking and kind of be half-hearted, you know, half-hearted attention instead of full attention. So just the encouragement to be seamless throughout the day today and um, steady, steady within your heart, steady within your being beautiful, spacious day reaching out in front of us with nothing that we have to do other than to be with full attention. A caring attention, a loving attention, a kind attention throughout the day today. Okay, Um, Elaine, uh, your name is now on the list um, for my interview group at 9.15. All right. Have a beautiful, fully attentive day. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.